Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week's guest set list curator is writer, researcher, and teacher who lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, John Brackett. John is the author of the brand new book, Live Dead, The Grateful Dead, Live Recordings, and the Ideology of Liveness, which is part of Nick Merriweather's curated Duke Press series, Studies in the Grateful Dead. Links to order Live Dead are available in the show notes, and I promise you, you're going to want to read this one. Live Dead is also this week's prize pack for the winner. Thanks so much for providing that copy, John, and thanks for being here. Here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year their performance is from. Contestants who are all on a video conference together can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest off from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will hear three tracks, and whoever is furthest off from the correct years in aggregate wins. We've got our record-setting five-time defending champ Steve here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment, but first... Without further ado, The Grateful Dead. Once in a while you get to show the light And the strangest of places if you look at it right The guesses are in. It was Scarlet Begonias at Alexandra Palace in Manchester, England on September 11th, 1974. Fun audience recording there, John. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I love Scarlet Begonias uh, and I enjoy, you know, so many of the band's performances uh, from this era. You know, there's this, just this great kind of jittery, nervous energy on the surface. And then uh, Kreutzmann and Lesh, you know, provide this great kind of more relaxed, kind of flowing halftime feel in the drums and the bass. It's just got a great groove uh, at this time. Uh, but this recording in particular, uh, I just find just really fascinating. Um, this was the first tune that the band played um, on the 11th at Alexandra Palace. And as you can hear, the first couple of minutes, the recording is pretty uneven. Um, a lot of emphasis on some of the vocals, but nothing in the instruments. Then after a while, you hear all the levels come down. And that's Kid Candelario coming over and kind of setting the soundboard recording for the rest of the show. Candelario uh, would have been, I think, uh, Keith's keyboard tech at the time, but he was also responsible for running the recordings that they were preserving. And at this moment, he drops down all the levels 
And then he starts building up the mix again, uh, starting with the drums. You hear the bass drum, then you hear the snare drum, hi-hat, and the overheads. Uh, and then you hear the bass added. First, it's panned really far to the right. And then he swings it back into the center. You can hear keyboards over there as well, and then the guitars. And he just builds up this really kind of very musical mix um, that really kind of underscores, you know, the, the emphasis that the band placed on the quality of these recordings. You know, we often think of their soundboards as kind of like these, uh, you know, they were there for review or whatever, but they really did care kind of about, the, you know, the quality and what they sounded like. But this one's great, too, because on uh, episode one, uh, Rich uh, mentioned that uh, he could hear, he felt Kreutzmann in the center of his head. And this is it right here, right in the very beginning. You just hear Kid kind of mixing the drums right down the center. There's a strong bass there, too. There's such a real kind of distinctive sound uh, to Kid's uh, soundboard recordings from this era. Really fun pick, John. Everyone got it except Kevin. Everyone gets 74. Kevin gets 73. Let's meet BJ, who is 43 from Oregon. You got the 74 correctly, BJ. What did you make of that? Um. Six pick seven, I think it was, um, was one of the first ones I latched on to. So I just kind of recognized it right away. You could hear Keith's uh, keyboard, the electric. And um, yeah, I mean, 74 just has its own thing going on. And it was pretty recognizable right away for me. You're on the next round, BJ, as is Steve. Steve, are you a big uh, Europe 74 guy? Uh Sure. <laughs> so much as that I'm, a 70, I'm a 74 guy, but those shows are just so weird because of all the, I mean, the band was a little afraid before they headed over there and they drugged the whole wall of sound over there. And I think the, the Alley Pally shows were the ones where they had the, the great dope reformation and burned their stashes on the stage one of the days because they were just so insane. Even they were recognizing it. I don't think it lasted very long, but you know, um, so, I mean, there, I like John, what you said about the nervous energy. I think there was a lot of that, you know? And so, uh, but I like the show from Dijon. They had to have lost their asses on that tour with the wall of sound and everything. It wasn't like it was a lot of dates or anything. It was a huge boondoggle. I mean, the music was cool, but I think the tour was a disaster, you know? And one of the reasons why they just said, oh my God, we need to seriously reevaluate things here. Hence the hiatus a little bit later, you know. Great. Steve, you're on the next round. Joining you is Jim. Jim is 45 for, from Vermont. Jim, nice pull. Why 74? Uh, I knew it was an early Scarlet Begonias, probably, from listening to this show and also the dead cast, the two of those things, but also just the, the feeling of the drums and Kreitzman and Phil's bouncy bass coming in. Just felt very 74. Kreitzman, do you feel him in your forehead? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's everywhere. It's just the best. It's the best. 73, 74, Billy. Yeah. Jim, you're on the next round. Kevin is 62 from Rutherford, New Jersey. Kevin, you're one year south at 73. Why 73? Yeah. So I don't know. For some reason, I just didn't have that 74 sound for me. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I was certainly hoping to uh, kind of 
get in on some of the earlier shows where some of the, you know, some of the contestants uh, didn't necessarily have as much knowledge as some of these guys do. But uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, I got to go out in the first round. I missed by one year. You know, it's uh, much better than missing by a 10 spot or something like that. That's so cool that you started listening so early and that you've seen the show evolve. Really appreciate it. So how did you get into the, the dead, Kevin? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but a friend of mine, you know, kind of turned me on to all kinds of different music way back, uh, way back when, uh, all my brothers, Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead. And, you know, he, his, our, our collection was really his brothers, you know, kind of collection. So we would, you know, listen to his stuff and he wasn't a dead fan. So my friend said, you know, you gotta, you gotta go out and buy a dead album. And so I ended up getting skeletons from the closet. I got it home and he's like, no, you got to get a live one. I was like, I, I barely had, you know, $5 to buy that one. Now I got to go get another one, you know? But anyway, you know, got uh, Skull and Roses and I was hooked from uh, from then on. I really had a couple of uh, near misses, you know, for getting to some shows early on. I, you know, like you said, I'm in Rutherford. I'm like right here by the Meadowlands. I was, you know, I had a ticket for, what was it, uh, Labor Day weekend, 78, but my my friend's girlfriend gave it to her new boyfriend. So, you know, I got missed out on that one. But uh, eventually I went to school outside of Philadelphia, Villanova, and got to see uh, uh, November 79 in the Spectrum. And that was kind of my first live show and then kind of took off from there. What did you make of that 80s arc? What was that roller coaster like? Yeah, I mean... It was a roller coaster. I mean, we just uh, we had we had a great time, regardless of you know whether things were clicking on all cylinders or not. You know, it was just just great to be there, great to hang out in the parking lot beforehand. And you know, obviously pre-internet, you know, you didn't have all of the information that you necessarily have today. So you know, who knew what was going on other than you know we were having a great time and enjoying the music and whether it was you know a four-star show or, or not, we still had we still had fun. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great show. Enjoy it. Good luck to everybody. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Jim, BJ, and Steve are on to the next round. John has another killer eccentric pick for them. Let's hear it. <laughs>
All right, the guesses are in. New Speedway Boogie at Temple University in Philly on May 16th, 1970. John, that was Cutler we heard, right? That was Sam Cutler. Yep, busting a taper. That's right. This is from an audience recording um, and really kind of captures the hazards of taping in the early 1970s. You know, I mean, we take these recordings for granted, but it's important to remember that, you know, late 60s, early 70s, um, was the time of bootlegs and bootleg recordings. And, you know, at this time, if a member of the dead or their crew saw a microphone, they would have just simply assumed that you were going to be bootlegging the show. And as you can hear, oftentimes you were going to get busted. So, yeah, that was Sam. Uh, and he had been a road manager for the Stones uh, previous year on their U.S. tour and then joined the dead in 1970. And as you can hear, he kind of confronts the taper, asks to stop, tells him he's the manager of the band and offers to pay for it as well. And you can kind of hear the moment kind of the, the tape clicks off. It must be the taper agreed. That, OK, yeah, I'm not going to record anymore. But then it comes back on and you can it's kind of muffled a little bit, but then it kind of goes back down and then it comes back up again, and you know Cutler and probably the rest of the road crew are just been like going back and forth down the aisle, you know, checking this out. Finally, they'd had enough, catches them, you know, and the rest, as you hear, is, is kind of history. Um, so, I mean, from a tape standpoint, this is a great document, you know, to listen to this. Um, this concert is pretty interesting, too, um, because the dead at this show, they were at the headliner. Uh, this was uh, Jimi Hendrix experience was headlining this particular show. I think Steve Miller was playing uh, a band called Cactus as well was on the bill. But uh, yeah, this was a Jimi Hendrix show. That's a nice billing. Well, all these guys got 1970. Man. So everyone's on the next round. <laughs> <laughs> BJ, we'll start with you. How'd you uh, diagnose that? Mm, well, at first, I I heard it was pretty early, and I couldn't tell exactly what song it was. So I was leaning a little sixty nine, uh, listening, trying to listen for TC in there, or so, some sort of clue. And then when I heard it was New Speedway, I thought, all right, chances are it's seventy. And then um, I realized that I had just heard that recording featured on the 31 Days of Dead uh, uh, Instagram thing. He just did all about the thank a taper thing, which, you know, got me primed up to read your book, John. I'm really excited. That's great. Because uh, I've just been uh, kind of appreciating that uh, this whole last month uh, more and more. So uh, I didn't realize that till afterwards. So just a kind of a lucky 70. Yeah, perfect. Steve, you also got 70. Did Cutler inform your decision or did you know it before? Well, I, I kind of assumed that it was 70 just because of the song. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's also worth noting with regarding to Cutler's attitude. It was from the environment that he left coming to the dead, which is that the Rolling Stones were very much a business-oriented entity, you know, and and they were... I think hyper concerned about that about that sort of thing. So I'm I'm just wondering if that was just kind of where Cutler's head was at. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and know. if I could just, you know, respond because Cutler, Cutler sure. definitely knew the value of bootlegs, right? That live, liver yeah, than yeah. you'll ever be was a big deal, you know. And that was an, oh, sure. an audience yep. bootleg recording that sounded fantastic. Yep, he knew that record, and so he knew the potential mm-hmm. of what could be produced as well. And so I think that was definitely sure. guiding him too. So yeah, you're right, Steve. Definitely, definitely. Jim, how'd you get 1970? Nice pull. Thanks. I think the rawness of Jerry's guitar, it's like kind of very topical song. And I think that's in the playing too for them. And then once you hear Cutler, you know, it must be pretty early and he's pissed. And I, I was just reading about Owsley, you know, he was anti kind of tape taper too. You're not going to like tape around Owsley, right? He would get pretty upset with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, you just didn't want to, t- you just didn't want to get caught it, right. by anybody. Great. Everyone's on the next round. Before we go on, John, I wanted to ask you about the, I really enjoyed your book. Um, and the first chapter is kind of dedicated to the idea of live music had to be manufactured and for marketing purposes, because all of music was live up until a point. Uh, and I'm not going to butcher this. I'd, I'd just love to hear you <laughs> kind of like talk about this and like how music went from being called music to live music. Yeah. I mean, so much about the book is about live recordings and and how they've become meaningful among the you know fans and just not just dead fans but music fans in general and so the first part of the book is really kind of unraveling like why we even care about live music you know because there's like you know there's a lot of rhetoric surrounding you know the live musical experience the concert especially in contrast to recording Think of the liner notes to Europe 72, right? There's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert. You know, the live music experience is often associated with these kind of more real kind of musical experience, you know, compared to the recording that's often kind of, you know, you know represented as kind of more like, you know, soulless and cold and rigid and fixed, Right. Live performances are valued often for that ability to create this contact between the musicians and the performers and this communal aspect, right? And to us, this idea just seems very transparent, you know? But this is something you had to learn. We didn't tumble out of the womb knowing that live music is better, you know? I mean, before the invention of the phonograph in 1877, you know, nobody was tooling around in their horse-drawn carriages with the live music is better bumper sticker, you know? I mean, this is an aesthetic statement. We have to kind of learn this, and then we have to kind of believe in it as well. And so the first part of the book is really talking about how this kind of what I'm calling this idea of liveness, these values and beliefs and ideas that we have about live musical performance. How those came to, you know, kind of be uh, uh, kind of projected to American audiences in the first part of the 20th century, you know, getting people to think about live music as this more kind of authentic kind of musical experience, and definitely in contrast to recordings. So, yeah, that's what I'm getting at with that, that you know, the, the whole idea of liveness. You know, why do we value, you know, these performances? And then also now, what does this mean when we talk about live recordings as well? So, yeah, it's really about how, you know, live recordings are meaningful. It's why we're sitting here right now in many ways, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating. 
Well, we got another song here. Let's hear it. First one says she got my child. It That was Friend of the Devil at Radio City Music Hall in New York on October 27th, 1980. John, uh, tell us about that one. Yeah, so that's uh, an audience recording from one of the shows at the extended run at Radio City. So yeah, those shows, along with uh, uh, select shows at the Warfield, actually all the shows at the Warfield, those were promoted as a 15th anniversary celebrations uh, for the band. So the band and the crew, as we know, recorded uh, the New York City shows and select shows at the Warfield uh, with plans to release those as live records. And as such, they tried to kind of limit uh, taping uh, by the fans. Despite their best efforts, obviously, they, they couldn't do it. And so, yeah, this is, this is an audience recording um, of the same performance of Friend of the Devil that appears on Dead Set. And... And heard, as heard on this performance, you know, following the, the big dramatic bridge, you know, the part got two reasons why I cry. On this recording, there's another verse, um, got a wife in Chino and a chorus, and then it moves on to Brent's solo. But that particular verse chorus pair was edited from the performance that appears on Dead Set. On the official release, uh, Brent's solo appears right after uh, the bridge. Now, I spent a lot of time on the Radio City shows in the book uh, because, you know, following, you know, Steal Your Face, this was really the moment where they kind of returned back to live recordings and were like, all right, we need to kind of really pay attention and do some stuff here. And uh, in the book, I describe how, you know, Betty, Dan Healy and others, um, how they recorded and engineered the original performances at Radio City. Um, both for Reckoning and for Dead Set. Um, the same audio recordings would have been used by Cantor Jackson and others for the various video releases that uh, were produced as well. There was a Showtime special as well, uh, along with the Dead Ahead, their first video release. Um, so when I was going through the archives and looking in through all the different documents, um, you know, I was kind of surprised because I wasn't seeing a lot concerning these recordings. 
given the care and the attention that the band dedicated to the performances at Radio City, you know, we might assume that they would have released uh, some, you know, other recordings uh, from those performances as well. But I don't think they have the recordings. Based on the materials I examined in the archive, I'm pretty sure that they don't have the multi-track recordings for the Radio City shows. Um, in fact, that it, it appears that they probably do this in the early 80s. In 1983, they were kind of entangled with Radio City Music Hall in this lawsuit. And uh, they were looking for the tapes then and couldn't find them. And in 1993, they were thinking of re-releasing and remastering Dead Ahead. And uh, again, they couldn't find the original audio recordings. And there's a little note in the archives written by Eileen Law, who was the first archivist for the dead. And it said, Master audio recordings never found. Uh, maybe they were in Betty's storage locker. So it's uh, pretty, pretty clear. It's very, very possible that the multi-tracked um, recordings from Radio City Music Hall were among the recordings that Betty grabbed from the vault uh, before she uh, uh, left, uh, left the organization. And given that it's been about 30 years since those recordings started to surface, I'm not sure if we would ever find them again. But who knows? You know, maybe out there, you know, somewhere out there, there's a big batch of Radio City Music Hall multi-tracks that are just waiting to be rediscovered. Treasure hunt. Yes. Okay, well, Steve is the only one who got it, and he's on to the finals to pursue his six-peat. Um, <laughs> Steve, what gave it away that it was 80? Well, Brent Midland and his plinky keys, and that the the Rhodes keyboard, um, and uh, bass. The, the rig that he was playing at that time was uh, pretty unique, and just the way it he had those gigantic. I don't know if they were twenty inch drivers or what, but at those Radio City shows in particular, that really comes through. And John, just I really appreciate you uh, using the audience recordings. <laughs> I mean, it's just because it's it's a whole other yeah. thing, and I always, if it's a, a a low gen audience recording, I almost always prefer them. So anyway, that's 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 cool. what I got. Steve, you are not the only one. John, you go into in your book about how the Deadhead's preference for the grittier live aesthetic, as opposed to the more polished Europe seventy two, actually pushed the band in that direction in terms of their live releases. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it took a while. I mean, you could even go back to, you know, History of the Grateful Dead, Volume 1, you know, and that, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that Owsley understood that to more in line with the aesthetic of the tapes and stuff like that. But it was still a compilation, you know, recording. And so it still was had that stamp of, you know, record industry on it, you know. But yeah, in the 80s recordings, and especially these Radio City Music Hall, I reproduce another document in the book. Um, there was a meeting where they were discussing the titles for the upcoming live records, you know. And in one little corner of it, it says something, you know, Dan and Jerry say that the audience, you know, level, the audience ambience is going to be, you know, more prevalent on this record. You know, so it was definitely a concern, you know, and as other people have documented, the manner by which the band recorded these shows, they were, you know, they wanted the audience sound. 
but they also wanted to mix it in a way that they could kind of control it and kind of craft, you know, this really kind of unique recording. The studio recordings of Reckoning and Dead Set, I, I love them. They, they sound fantastic. I just love that unique kind of sound of those records, you know. And so to kind of go back and pull this audience recording and to hear that, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's incredibly different, you know. Uh, it's, 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 it's cool stuff. Yeah, cool recordings. So BJ guessed 1979 and Jim guessed 1976. So BJ's on in the next round. BJ, tell us about 79. Well, I was going between 79 and 80, and I, I guess I got tripped up by the, uh, the plinky keys. Uh, I guess I associate them with more 79. And if, when, once, once I realized it was dead set, um, version, I just, just kind of kicking myself. But oh, well. What are you going to do? I would have been shocked if you had recognized it as the dead set version. Yeah. Congrats, BJ. You're on the finals to take on Steve. Jim, you guessed 1976. Talk to us. Yeah, that's brutal. I'm going to blame the audience recording. That what you love kills you. <laughs> it was, uh, there was this whole atmosphere, and I'm like, I hear Donna. And now I could be like, I think she was there. And the plinky keys, I was like, Keith, they just haven't brought Keith down in the monitor yet in the 79 when they got them quieter. You know, I, I kind of went the other way. It's just, I can't say it's embarrassing because this is very challenging, but <laughs> Sorry. yeah. Man, and yeah. John's oh, been well. choosing no tracks with, yeah. you know, people are playing with the levels. So it makes a lot of sense. So how'd you get into the dead? Oh, I had a, a tie dye t-shirt and, uh, that my sister gave me before I listened to the dead. And then once I, my friend Nick saw me in the t-shirt and it was a dead shirt and he got me on the bus. I think he is the bus, actually. <laughs> and, and so then uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot. It was like, you know, copying tapes and dead bass, studying dead bass and going to see Max Creek a lot. And so that's how I got in. So when you say study dead bass, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I, I, I wouldn't really take credit for studying, but we spent a lot of hours just looking at shows, imagining shows, and then writing our own set lists and kind of, you know, coming up with fantasy set lists based on what we were reading. And that was all like in like 90, 94. And then we went to see the dead. I went to see the dead for the first time at, at uh, Nassau Coliseum. I only remember the weight and uh, Franklin's tower, but Hornsby was there, which was pretty cool. Very yeah. cool. That's kind of what happened there. And then I got into Dylan pretty seriously from Jerry's versions of songs. And so it's just been 30 years of the dead and Dylan pretty much uh, the constant soundtrack. It's ever, it always keeps evolving. It never gets boring. It's always innovative. It always brings me to the most creative and kind of uh, hopeful places, but also acknowledging the like despair of the world at the same time. So it, it, the dead's everything, right? In many ways. So, but what it was not was Radio City Music Hall in 19. <laughs> I can't believe it's like the, de it's like dead ahead or whatever. It's like the record, but the version and, it was pretty, though. It was pretty, I can't wait to go back and listen to it and see what I was thinking or not thinking. Jim, you're the man. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jim. Uh, congratulations, BJ. Good luck, Steve. Uh, John, congrats on the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for playing. It was great. All right. Three songs. Lowest aggregate score wins the copy of Live Dead. Let's get after it. Yeah. 
hoping love would not forsake. The days that lie between, lie between. the guesses are in that was the first ever days between on guests of the year wow. uh, at the sam boyd silver bowl in las vegas nevada on may 15th 1993 john really nice pick beautiful uh tell us about that one yeah well i mean first of all i'm just blown away that that's the first days between um <laughs> i mean that's this is a great performance but i mean that's just such such a fantastic late song you know by hunter and garcia um you know, throughout the tune, you know, the way that the music, and the lyrics, they kind of they keep building towards these kind of like plateaus throughout. And it kind of gets more intense and driving, you know. And there's this balance, too. You know, these sections that are kind of dark and more morose. And then these kind of light, kind of major key. It sounds like it's going to kind of break through, but the tune never does. I mean, it's just the way that it just keeps pulling you on and pulling you forward. Um I think this one is like about 10 minutes long. I mean, it could have gone on for like 10 more minutes easily. The reason I chose this one, though, is that the, the photo uh, that adorns the, the, uh, my book um, was taken at this show. Uh, so this is this uh, Sam Boyd Silver Stadium. Uh, this is May 15th, 93. And this photo was taken by uh, Jay Blakesburg, uh, the renowned photographer, absolutely love the photo it just really kind of captures so much kind of what the book uh is about you know um and it got me thinking a little bit about you know the the dead and particular venues um uh you know alongside the traditional live music in vegas you know the casinos and clubs and stuff like that the dead you know were really kind of instrumental in and cultivating this kind of live music market for rock and pop acts, you know, at the time in the early 90s. And they played at this particular venue a bunch of times, you know, beginning in 1991. Um, they played with uh, Carlos Santana was the opener. And then in 92 to 95, they uh, routinely did uh, runs of three shows um, in 92. Um, they were the opener was um, Steve Miller. Uh, Sting in 93, uh, Traffic in 94, and then the Dave Matthews Band in 95. Um, those shows grossed, like, I think I read, like, $4 million or something, you know. So Dead were just, like, so influential in really kind of opening up this idea of stadium size, you know, rock and pop shows uh, in Vegas, you know. They even kind of set the stage for the sphere, you know, in many ways. Um, 
but it was great. I just came back from San Francisco. And while I was there, I had the pleasure of meeting Jay, um, get him a copy of my book. He was leading a tour of this awesome exhibit of uh, concerts, photos, and portraits. Uh, it's called Retro Blakesburg. Uh, it's at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. The exhibit's on until it's been extended to like July. So if you get a chance to go out there and you're interested, I'd, I'd urge you to do it. Some just incredible uh, photographs from out. Jay Blakesburg of Guest of the Year fame. Right, yeah, yeah. That's where I heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people. So both these guys got it. 93. BJ, tell us. Well, I'll start by saying I think Days Between is one of, if not the most underrated song um, that they have. And, and I even underrated it in my early years of listening. And uh, I've really grown to love it in probably the last 10 years, like so much and the, the, the structure of the song. And, um, you know, I, I was between 93 and 94 and I really just went from Jerry's strength of his voice and, you know, and went, went earlier on it. Nice pull. Steve, you're a 93 expert. What gave that away? Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously later era just because of the timeline of the song. And I, too, will say that, the, I mean, that song has melted me on many levels multiple times. And I just, I think it's just fantastic. I Like Hunter and Garcia just, I mean, they went through their things over the years. And for them to come back and come out with that just is, a, I think, a, an incredible tribute to their relationship and their songwriting capabilities. Because it's, yeah, to me, it's the best uh, Hunter Garcia ballad. And I know that's kind of a hot take, but overall, I mean, it's just, it's just got everything. And like, I'm a wharf rat myself. That song hits me real deep, you know, but, but days between, um, well, Mike, I don't remember it was the show that I ran into you at in Boulder, but they played that one of those nights and the line about the, uh, softest velveteen and, and left on shelves collecting dust. I was thinking about my daughters, right. I mean, like, we're cool, but, like, I just saw them and, like, oh, my God, I hope, like, that that never happens to them. And I was just bawling, like, I mean, just openly weeping in fucking Folsom Field, you know. Um, it's beautiful. Um, but what gave it, what 93 was, it's, for me, it was the tone of the drums, the way the drums were produced. Because when Cutler took over, and our uh, uh, John Cutler, a lot, too, a lot of colors in this show, John Cutler just passed away. Um, so, uh, rest in peace, uh, John Cutler, but anyway, the 93, it's kind of a specific sound there. So that's, that was the tip off. Beautiful. Before we go on the next round, BJ, I wonder if you tell us how you got into the dead. Oh yeah. Well, I think my first experience was seven, eight years old. And, uh, I remember seeing touch a gray video on TV and it was just my I did, had no idea who they were, what it was. I just know it was my favorite video when it came on the TV and it was such a catchy song. And I loved the, the skeleton marionettes turning into the band. And I, I just remember standing in front of the TV and loving it. And, you know, I was just barely 15 when Jerry died. I had no older siblings to get me into it or to, you know, I was just going to concerts. My first concert just months before it happened. So, uh, yeah, I was right on the tail end, but I cut my teeth learning the Grateful Dead catalog, playing music, and it's just comfort music. You know, it's it, it could be Reckoning or it could be Primal Dead, and it just still gives me that warm fuzzy, no matter what it is. 
no matter how many other genres I've veered into, you know, over the years of playing music and what have you. Uh, yeah, it's just always the constant. You were kind enough to send me some scans of Golden Road magazines from a long time ago. Ah, uh, yeah. Thank you again for that. And I'm wondering how you came into those. <laughs> that that was just so random and lucky. I was house sitting for a friend in Oregon and we were there for a few months and then left and need, he needed us back for a couple of weeks. And a couple of weeks later, I went back and there was a stack of five mint condition golden roads on the table. And I thought it was the best gift ever. And I tried to sit, I wanted to read every single word and I just couldn't, uh, you know, bring myself to not have them, uh, you know, to read them at my leisure. So I scanned every page and made uh, PDFs out of them and sent them to you because I thought you'd appreciate it. I did. And it was incredibly kind. <laughs> what, uh, what years were they from? <laughs> there was a, started from 85, I think it was maybe winter 85, and then a couple 86 and two, it was five of them total. And, uh, you know, so cool. it was through the, the coma uh, time. And I found it interesting that um, even in the mid 80s, you know, there was there's a feedback section where deadheads would write, you know, what they liked or didn't like or whatever about the shows. And I found it interesting that there was, you know, complaints about gate crashing, even in 86. <laughs> and, you know, as, especially on the East Coast that in the Meadowlands or... Um, and I just found that surprising that, you know, that it was happening even that early. And it was, you know, the, the, the issues that were, that were building, were building for a long time. Yeah, that's true. What a, what a find. And it's really cool of you to, you know, share with everyone after it was shared with you. Okay. So it's zero, zero after the first song, two more songs. Let's hear the next one. Jesus. <laughs> it hurts me too. A lovely it hurts me too at Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco on September 16th, 1966. John, tell us about that one. 
Yeah. So, I mean, as we all know, there are, you know, considerably fewer recordings uh, from the band's earliest years. So I wanted to make sure that I included something and especially something that was this good uh, and featured Pigpen. Um, and so this is a great, fantastic version of Hurts Me Too. Great harmonica solo. Um, this uh, entire recording, you know, also features uh, a really good performance of Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, uh, sung by Garcia. And he sings it with this kind of quick staccato, kind of tremolo in his voice. Um, it's a pretty impressive live recording. You know, it does a really good job of capturing kind of the dynamic range of the band at the time. Um, and this is from a performance that was on an album called Vintage Dead. Uh, and that was a collection of live recordings that was released in 1970 uh, by Sunflower Records. Now, this is kind of a well-documented story in the history of the dead, but it's one that's kind of, you know, appropriate for kind of what we're doing here. because. Um, Sunflower was a subsidiary of MCA, and they were a major label at that time. And MCA had acquired these particular live recordings through a guy named Robert Cohen. And in the mid-60s, Cohen was uh, regularly recording bands at places like the Avalon and other kind of local venues in the scene. And he'd been granted permission by the dead to use these recordings for what would have been a compilation album that he was going to put out on his own label called Together Records. So this is like a handshake deal the band made with Cohen, released these records. Well, Together Records went out of business. MCA assumed the debt, took all of the tapes as well, and then released them on their own. Um, so this was released as Vintage Dead on an MCA subsidiary. Uh, without the approval of the band. Um, so kind of in many ways, you know, that record, another one that came out a year later called Historic Dead, you know, these are some of the first kind of archival recordings of the band to appear on the market. But at the same time, it's kind of weird. They're in a certain sense, these kind of unofficial commercial bootlegs as well. You know, the band did not see any royalties from these releases. So that's kind of the story behind this pick. Yeah, there again. There's so few '66s, as you said, and I'm wondering why were some concerts recorded and others weren't. What was the variable? Um, I just think it was probably availability. I mean, if there was somebody there who could do it, that would be great. Um, I'm not sure that at this point that this uh, consistently recording was kind of part of their mindset yet at this point. Um, but you would have people like Cohen um, at these venues who would be recording. So when they do emerge, obviously, you know, these are these are important documents. Yeah. Great, John. Thank you. So Steve got it exactly 66. BJ guessed 69. Steve, you've been on Guest of the Year a lot. We rarely get a 66. Did you just recognize the recording? How did you figure it out? Um, yes and yes. I, uh, I, you know, so my all-time favorite second set is 12 26 79 my all-time favorite single whole show is 5 26 73 but my favorite grateful dead music is 1966 grateful dead music i just i love the energy i love the sound um like the unbridled enthusiasm the pig pens like midnight hour breakdowns are unreal uh, there's just so much fun, you know, and there's the, a, a real sense of 
possibility and you know like the the quote summer of love or whatever hadn't happened yet i don't even know if the term hippies had been coined yet you know but they definitely knew that um things were changing and that they were kind of uh, to me it feels like they knew like they really i don't know that they knew what they were at the forefront of but they knew that they were there and so it's all just very exciting and that comes through in the music bj you guessed 1969 very reasonable guess why that well Obviously, it was it was early, and um, I think I might have tripped myself up at the very beginning. I thought I heard just a hint of a of a keyboard in there, and and then I was and I was thought, oh, maybe it's TC in there. Then it, it must have been Pig for a second, just holding it, and then and because it, it went away, the rest of it while he was fronting, and so I was kind of biased towards '69 the whole time. And then I heard Jerry's guitar. And his, just his style, and I, and I knew I should have gone earlier because I mean, just you could just tell by the way he was raging on that guitar. That was way early. I, I don't give '66 enough spins, so it didn't like stick out to me as as much as it should have. Thanks, BJ. All right, before we go on to possibly the last song in the finals, John, how did you get into the Dead? Um, it was really a very roundabout way growing up. I was not really into the dead at all. Um, you know, I was listening to a lot of punk rock. Uh, I was listening to, um, you know, a lot of British kind of pop type of stuff. You know, I mean, it was coming up in the eighties. I'm listening to the cure and the Smiths and stuff like this. The dead seemed to me like something that was just like, ugh. I mean, I knew him from the radio. You know, I knew the tunes, but it was just like a very different culture for what I was doing at that time. And then I went to, uh, for my undergraduate studies, I went to Ithaca College. And um, that's where I started getting introduced to the whole scene and the whole culture. And I was meeting people who were into it. I was in the School of Music and there would be people. I remember there was an oboist there. She was incredible. But uh, certain times of the year, she was gone because um, she, she went on tour with the band, you know, to follow them around. And I was like, well, this is a nice gig, right? I mean, you can go to college, but you can still take some time. So maybe I should kind of consider this, you know, but it just took, you know, friends and listening, you know, because it's a very, it's a daunting band to get into if you haven't done it before because of people like us. <laughs> you know so you know it took me a while to do it i kind of did it at my own pace and did this and that and the other thing and uh, um yeah i feel like i'm at the point now i still feel like a little impostery sometimes you know i've only been listening for 20 years you know, but I still feel a little bit like I'm making shit up. Okay, okay new guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I often, you know, I, people ask me this before. I would always say, well, you know, relatively speaking, I'm young. You know, I'm 52, so I don't really have that much of experience with it. But it's like, no, nah, I'm old and I have been listening for a long time, you know. But uh, yeah, mostly through friends. Uh, and just really being interested in not just the band, but the phenomenon itself. And just seeing how this is kind of recreated. Because I have I have uh, two sons, and both of them listen. They're not like hardcore way into it, but 
they know and they're conversant and they kind of have this kind of fundamental knowledge. And it's uh, it's interesting to see how, you know, the legacy of this band is going to continue to develop and change, you know, in the years and the decades to come, you know, especially because now it's just it's all live recordings. Right. I mean, this is how it's how it is. This is how people are going to know the dead. Yeah. So what clicked were like i'm i'm so fascinated by the the ideology of liveness that i think this is a book yeah i have a very good friend who uh, encouraged me to go to the dead archive a colleague of mine and he had written a, an article uh that kind of covered this idea you know very generally this idea of liveness across the dead to include not only recordings but the concert experience the lot you know the entire scene with the dead And as I thought more about it, I was like, you know, what does that idea mean? You know, why is that idea important? You know, why do we even care about, you know, liveness at all? And so um, it's when, uh, you know, he suggested I go out and visit the archive. And it was when I was out there and I started seeing the attention and the focus that the band had focusing on themselves as a business that I was like, okay, this is something I need to take seriously. There's something else here that can kind of provide a different perspective on the band, you know, not necessarily behind the scenes type of thing, but just this different approach to kind of looking at the band's history, you know, and that's what I've tried to do in the book, you know, use those live recordings as a way into the, to the history of the group. I went to see your book talk in San Francisco and you're clearly a professor. You have, yeah, I mean, everyone's heard now you're, yeah, you're just a great speaker. And then the second part of the program was you guys were going to play music and I didn't know what to expect, but then you just took off your, your sport coat and pulled your sleeves and sat behind the kit and broke out like a 20 minute dark star, which I was amazed by. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> me too. And you were all, yeah, <laughs> it was great. And I was sitting there just slack I'm like, I, this, this book event is taking a real turn. And I'm wondering, when you play Dark Star on drums with people you've never played with before, among them David Gans, what are you paying attention to? You've truly never played music with those people before, correct? Yeah, I mean, we did the sound check before, and I think we did West L.A. Fade Away, and uh, maybe started <laughs> Cassidy. But then, yeah, when we got to the second half of that show, um, you know, we had some tunes that we had suggested, you know, so we all kind of knew generally what we'd been doing. But I had never played with David. I never played with Michael, the other author, nor uh, Bob Braloff either. And I mean, these are players. So to answer your question, I just counted. <laughs> it just was like, <laughs> I'm keeping time and I am just going to, you know, I know the forms and I'm going to hold it together. And uh you know, there were a few moments where I was able to kind of, you know, step out. But for the most part, it was just like, we need to make sure we start and end in the same spot, you know? And uh, it was a blast. It was so much fun. Okay. One more song, unless All there's right. a tiebreaker. BJ needs to make up three points on this one. Steve needs to nail it or be two years off or less to uh, <laughs> get his six Pete. Let's hear the next song.
Greatest story ever told at Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, on June twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five. John, uh, it's it's just the tune. It just sounds like it's going to fall apart at any second, and I just love <laughs> that. You know, because it's just like we have to go. We just have to keep playing. We just have to do it. Um, but you know, I've just for past couple of months i've just been listening to a lot of like these the 80s you know recordings uh, i just love the sounds of those kind of cassette recordings you know that were made at this time but i just love listening to them too because then you get the spots like this where healy kind of will just crank you know the the reverb or you know on the voices or something or the echo and and it just adds this ridiculous sound you know and um it, you know, and you've seen so many, you know, explanations as to why it's happened online, but they're just so ridiculous. They just make me laugh. And I just wanted to include one of them because they're really foolish. Yeah. <laughs> Is the, isn't the leading explanation he was just like fucking around? Yeah, no, I think he was without a doubt. But <laughs> I mean, it's just like don't you have anything to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, like a lot going on, you know, and it's just so funny, you know, because. Yeah, you read like he's messing with Bob and things like this. And uh, but it's just it's very funny because, you know, he knows there are moments when he's going to crank it up and it just really kind of adds to the performance. I mean, he's part of the performance in many respects at this point, too, which I I kind of find that pretty funny as well. Can you imagine like Taylor Swift's sound person just fucking with her during like a <laughs> it's completely unfathomable. You know, it, it... Yeah, that person would never work again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Healy hung on forever until they're finally like, all right, enough. Like, I know. I know. Super fun pick. Steve got it. Uh, 1985, exactly. Congrats, Steve. BJ guessed 1987. Steve, congrats. Talk to us. To reference the Healy thing, I really think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like Bear always tried to make what the make the the macrocosm sound like the microcosm like he wanted the crowd to hear what the band was hearing like that was his thing he wanted it to be pure like that and healy considered his uh the the front of house his instrument like that was his territory and so he could do whatever the hell he wanted to and you know and this is one of those really you know, uh, audacious yeah, examples exactly. of that, you know, um, you know, you mentioned like the train wreck quality of it. I mean, to me, like 85 dead is 
just i mean it's just dysfunction junction man <laughs> they are insane there's nothing positive happening besides phil's relatively sober and in love other than that like they're a disaster you know and so to me getting them on stage all at the same time to actually play music is like a magic act you know and uh and so that that's just that chaos reigns and it comes through the music sometimes in great ways and sometimes not so great ways but even i caught garcia during one of the like coming out of i don't remember exactly the part of the song but he gave a little like a little like yeah we're having fun kick in his in his yeah. plucking yeah. you know <laughs> you know like he like he like he knows what's happening you know and he knew exactly what he was right and uh I really think that he kind of was embracing that a little bit. I can't remember if that was post bust or not. It might've been um, with the golden gate park. Uh, um, but whatever. I mean, like there's that uh, more fun than a barrel full of monkeys aspect to it, d despite everything, you know? And so uh, I don't know. That's uh, and so anyway, plus I had the second set of that show on tape forever. So there's that <laughs> Anyways, I had the tape. Uh, that's awesome steve bj a really really great mm -hmm. run uh tell us about uh this last one yeah well you know up against the five-time champion now six pete is, <laughs> i don't know who's gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> i wish you would have I, I wish too but um yeah the uh 85 is is a year of its own i mean uh, you know if i group into eras you know 85 is always a standalone you know just for uh, so many things and you know set list uh uniqueness as well um but uh what i was hearing there was i said 87 really for the drum sound because the drums were really poking out and um and the and the healy tweak you know i thought he did more of that in 87 so those two things really kind of uh, sh showed me to 87 but and usually for 85, I rely on Jerry's voice because it's really distinct 85 and Brink's keyboards, which were there, which I should have really paid a little more attention to as an 85 sound. That's a very respectable guess. I mean, like 87, that's right in that ballpark. Well, let's do well, this again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you, guys. Might as well. Yeah, might as well. Might as well. <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you so much for coming on and preparing such a really eclectic, fascinating set list. As Steve said, it's great to have some audience recordings. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody. Uh, I hope you had a good time. I had a blast. Live Dead is available now. There will be a direct link in the show description. Thanks again, John. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. For all the show links, including our new YouTube channel, go to guestthear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at Thanks so much to John for curating the set list and for providing the prize pack. His book, Live Dead, The Grateful Dead, Live Recordings, and the Ideology of Liveness, available now, and you can link to it via the show notes. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I like to think about it as almost like the same thing as like a star wars tv show it's like this extended grateful dead universe where you can really go into anything i guess you could have wrote and written a book about the ideology of liveness in any number of settings but to examine it through the lens of the grateful dead is a real treat shout out to dylan for drawing the posters james and jack thank you for helping out behind the scenes thank you so much for listening again thanks to the amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible especially that guy who got stopped by cutler congratulations to steve for 
yet another uh, championship defense. And to our other contestants, thanks for playing. And remember, it's all one song anyway. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night.